0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: I've been anything but distressed at this letter. Here was his father using words which were an accusation of his mother's adultery. She accompanies him in the house and abroad. Worse, it amounted to an accusation of treason on Edward's part, which would incur the wrath of God as well as his father's indignation. How on earth was he to make an impression as a monarch when the time came for him to inherit, if he was a traitor even before he inherited? But that was not all. The king continued, "'We are not pleased with you, and you should not so displease us, neither for the sake of your mother nor for anyone else's sake.' We charge you, by the faith, love, and allegiance which you owe us, and on our blessing, that you come to us without delay, without opposition or any further excuse, for your mother has written to us to say that if you wish to return to us, she will not prevent it. Fair son, do not disregard our orders, for we hear much that you have done which you ought not to have done. The letter was designed to strike fear into the prince. Among the things he had done which he ought not to have done were two royal appointments. When the king had allowed him to travel to France, he had authorised him to renew the appointments of his agents in the Duchy of Aquitaine, both the Seneschal of Gascony and the Constable of Bordeaux. Edward had instead appointed Richard Berry to the Constable of Bordeaux and had appointed a friend of Mortimer's, Oliver Ingham, Seneschal of Gascony. In the latter appointment especially, Edward was probably leaned on by Mortimer, who seems also to have appointed himself Edward's tutor in Berry's place. But the king was laying guilt onto the young duke with seething indignation, and Edward can have felt no pride in not acquiescing to his father's demands. If his father thought that he was defying him, he would be deemed traitorous. If the king knew he had no choice in the matter, he would be perceived to be weak. By May 1326, Edward knew he was going to be used in a battle between his parents. He could not return to England, he was practically a prisoner, and his marriage to a daughter of Hainault had been agreed. Mortimer had secured the initial contract and forged the strategy in 1324. In December 1325, the Countess of Hainault, Isabella's cousin, had travelled to Paris and met Isabella. The Pope, seeing that war was likely, dispatched envoys to try to secure peace, but their mission was doomed. At the coronation of the Queen of France on the 11th of May 1326, Mortimer carried Edward's robes, an especially prominent position. The papal envoys travelling to England relayed this news to the King, who was furious. To the Bishop of Rochester he shouted, Was there not a Queen of England once who was put down out of her royalty for disobeying her husband's orders? He was referring to Queen Ayadberger, who killed her husband in 802 and was exiled from Wessex. The Bishop advised the King not to pursue that line of argument any further, but if he hoped thereby to quell the King's anger he was to be disappointed. The rebels were gathering in France. Edmund, Earl of Kent, the king's own half-brother, had decided to stay with Isabella and Mortimer and had married Mortimer's cousin, Margaret Wake. Sir Henry Beaumont, one of the guardians of the young prince, had also decided to stay. Isabella was marshalling her finances in the county of Pontieu to pay for ships to invade England. On the 19th of June, the king could bear it no longer. He sent a final series of letters to King Charles, to the Bishop of Beauvais, and to his son. The one sent to Edward fumed that he had "...not humbly obeyed our commands as a good son ought, since you have not returned to us, but have notoriously held companionship with Mortimer, our traitor and mortal enemy, who was publicly carried to Paris in your company." The king insisted that his son had "...proceeded to make various alterations, injunctions, and ordinances without our advice and contrary to our orders." A key line in the letter was, You have no governor other than us, nor should you have. Once again, the king exhorted his son not to marry without his advice and consent. And finally, there was a postscript to the letter. The last sentence was as cold a threat as the king could have written. Understand certainly that if you now act contrary to our counsel and continue in willful disobedience, you will feel it all the days of your life, and you will be made an example to all other sons who are disobedient to their lords and fathers. And with that, all communication between the king and his son ceased. Edward probably concluded that no matter what happened now, he could never be restored to his father. In July 1326, Edward and his mother left France and entered Hainault. Dispenser had tried bribing Frenchmen to kidnap Isabella and Mortimer. Several chronicles mentioned that Isabella was in fear of her life, one even stating that she fled by night, secretly advised of her peril by her cousin, Robert d'Artois. They had little time left to organize and mount their invasion. Mortimer had traveled ahead to see to the arrangement of the fleet, Beyond his presence and a few disaffected English lords, including the Earl of Kent, Henry Beaumont, Sir Thomas Roselin and Sir John Maltravers, they would have to rely on Hainalter mercenaries. And foreign troops on English soil was yet another problem they had to bear in mind. The English were not used to being overrun by foreign armies. On the 27th of August, it was settled that Edward would marry Philippa, youngest daughter of Count William of Hainault, within two years. This was the linchpin of the plan, agreed in outline in December the previous year. It was on this marriage that Hainalter's faith in the whole project rested. Many stories have been told about the marriage and how Edward and Philippa first met. Biographers in the past, struggling for something to say about him in his youth, have seized on his relationship with his wife and used it to amplify the romantic element in his character. One tale often told is that Bishop Stapledon, while engaged on his mission in 1319, looked over Philippa and reported that she was fitting as a bride for the future king. Another appears in the pages of Foissart's Chronicle, that when Edward arrived in Hainault with his mother, Edward paid more attention to Philippa than Count William's other daughters, and so Edward chose her for his bride. Modernist historians, finding Fossard a fanciful writer, generally dismissed the latter story and accepted the former, stating that Philippa had already been chosen to be his bride, and even claiming that Philippa was born on the 24th of June, 1311, on the assumption that she was the eight-year-old girl Stapledon saw in 1319. But as a close examination of the evidence shows, it was not Philippa, but her older sister, Margaret, whom Stapledon examined. As for Foissart's story, he states that he heard the details from Philippa herself, how Edward met four daughters of the Count and liked her the best in the eight days they spent together at Valenciennes. Certainly, Froissart could be telling the truth, for he served in the English royal household from 1361 and presented Philippa with his poetic and historical works and relied on her as a historical source for parts of his chronicle. The specific eight-day stay at Valenciennes is entirely plausible, and he correctly names the four girls, apparently in age order, Margaret, Philippa, Jeanne and Isabella. Perhaps Philippa passed over the fact that her elder sister was already married to Ludwig of Bavaria to make it seem that Edward had preferred her to Margaret, his first intended bride, so that she would not appear a second choice. Either way, there is no reason to doubt Fossard's statement that Edward took a great liking to Philippa on this occasion, especially as they were practically the same age and got on so well together in later years. We may thus have some confidence that, as Fossard mentions in a later entry, When the eight days were up and it was time for the english to move on 12-year-old philippa burst into tears at edward's departure the fleet set sail from brill on the 22nd of september straight into a storm after two days of rough seas and high winds they landed at walton on the coast of suffolk in the lands of the earl of norfolk edward's uncle and that was the beginning of another storm, a proverbial whirlwind, as first Norfolk sent 1,000 men to their aid, and then other knights and lords joined them. Mortimer's secret messages, smuggled in barrels and other merchandise, and relayed by word of mouth by men travelling as pilgrims, had worked a political miracle. England had never seen anything like it. Although the invaders had come with probably only 1,500 soldiers, men hastened to support them as soon as they landed. Isabella, dressed in her widow's weeds, played the part of a lady in distress, come to avenge the wrongs of Hugh Dispenser. She travelled as if on pilgrimage wherever she went. Mortimer, fearful that his presence would cast doubts on the queen's morality and the justification of their invasion, kept a very low profile. Edward, on the other hand, was championed, as Earl of Chester and Duke of Aquitaine. It was under the royal banner that the army marched, and no one dared to draw a sword against the future king. Although Edward II ordered the largest army ever to have been summoned, more than 47,000 men, most of these troops did not respond at all, and those who did simply joined the insurgent army as it swept across East Anglia into Cambridgeshire. Five days after landing, the invaders moved into Bury St Edmunds. Edward and his mother lodged at the abbey, playing the part of dispossessed royalty, while Mortimer stayed with the army. In London, authority was collapsing around the king. Although the tower had been provisioned for a siege, the king soon saw that he and Dispenser wouldn't be able to hold out against the citizens, let alone Mortimer's army. Panic set in, and the king decided to flee westwards before Mortimer cut him off. Already the invading army was moving to the west of London. The royal household and men-at-arms marched out of the gates of the capital in confusion. Weighed down by the 60,000 pounds of gold that remained in the royal treasury, Edward II and Hugh Dispenser began the long journey towards South Wales. As the king moved westwards, the invaders turned to pursue him. When the king entered the royal fortress of Wallingford on the 6th of October, they were approaching Baldock. Three days later, as the king marched into Gloucester, they came to Dunstable. On the 10th of October, while both armies were still far apart, the decisive blow was struck. Edward heard the devastating news that Henry of Lancaster, the most powerful man in the realm, his cousin, had declared for the invaders. Mortimer had succeeded in bringing about the most powerful alliance possible, between the lords of the Welsh marches, the royal uncles, and the confederacy of northern barons led by Lancaster. This closed off the last avenues of hope for the king. He and Hugh de Spencer abandoned their men at arms and tried to flee by boat from Chepstow, but failed with the wind against them. They paid a priest to sing a mass in the hope that God would favour them, but God was not listening to his dejected royal supplicant. The wind blew the king back to shore. Young Edward could never have expected to be greeted with such relief and joy. He and his mother were feted in town after town across England. His father's promise to make him an example to all disobedient sons now seemed a complete delusion. But if Edward's life and position had been saved by Mortimer's strategic genius, the spectres which Mortimer had summoned up were equally worrying. In London, there was anarchy. The mob had broken into the tower and dragged out Edward's nine-year-old brother, John, and had set him up as ruler of the city. This was a joke in itself, for there was no rule in the city. Rioters and thieves were on the loose. Anyone suspected of collaborating with the dispenser regime was robbed and killed. Bishop Stapledon, hearing that his house had been looted and was on fire, rode across the city in armour to confront the robbers. The mob caught him in the churchyard of St. Paul's and dragged him from his horse and down Cheapside, cutting off his head with a bread knife in their mad fury. They sent the head as a present to Isabella. If ever there was an example of how devastating the loss of widespread support could be, it was the destruction of royal power in late September and early October 1326. To Edward's dismay, the country simply jettisoned his father. All the long centuries of dignity, glory, authority, respect, chivalry and honour, everything which was sacred and powerful about royalty, was stripped away. The king had been forced to run ignominiously towards Wales and then forced out to sea. This was distressing for Edward. Mortimer's political machinations, which had served so well to launch their return to the country, now threatened to destroy the very thing that Edward hoped would be saved for him. The authority of the crown. At Wallingford on the 15th of October, the invaders issued a proclamation. They declared, in Edward's name, that the king had accepted the advice of evil men, and through them the church had been despoiled, the dignity of the crown had been reduced, lords had been imprisoned without trial and fined, put to death or exiled, and the people had been burdened by heavy taxes. The invaders proclaimed they had come to put an end to this despotism. Edward, seeing his name now being used as an authority for political documents, could only hope that that was true. But on the same day as the proclamation was issued, Bishop Orleton preached a sermon to many hundreds of men at Oxford in which he accused the king of being a tyrant and a sodomite, echoing the charges brought against the disgraced Pope Boniface VIII in 1303. It was abundantly clear to Edward that a new tyranny was lurking. His father had now become the target of political lies and anti-royalist propaganda. With Mortimer in charge, the outlook for the royal family was bleak. On the 26th of October, Bristol Castle fell to Mortimer. Despite Isabella's plea for mercy, Mortimer and the royal earls had the Earl of Winchester, Hugh Dispenser's father, beheaded. By then they knew that the king had fled the country. They also knew that he still had the great seal with him and a huge amount of silver, so there was a real danger he could have set up a government in exile. But Mortimer and his fellow advisers had an answer for that too. They argued that when the king left the realm, he should have left the seal in the hands of a regent. Since the king was now off the coast of Wales and had not appointed a regent, there could be said to be a technical absence of regnal authority in England. Here was their opportunity. Mortimer and Isabella agreed that Edward should be regent, and had Edward's new title proclaimed on the same day as Bristol fell. In the month since the invasion, Edward had seen his father's authority crumble to nothing. Now he himself was titular head of state. But the greater the position he held in theory, the less his power in practice. He was a pawn, not a king, and he knew it. His mother and Mortimer had taken royal power for themselves. The same day he had been appointed to the regency, Mortimer and Isabella had designated Robert Wyville, Isabella's clerk, to keep and control Edward's privy seal. Later, they would appoint the chancellor and treasurer too, and the man they chose to be treasurer was Orlerton, the bishop who preached the sermon that Edward's father was a sodomite. Edward was as much on the defensive as his father. The heirs to the throne of Edward I were seeking refuge in the last silent places of their kingdom. In the King's case, Neath Abbey in South Wales. In Edward's case, in the Quiet Council of His Conscience. King Edward II and his companions were captured by the Earl of Lancaster on the 16th of December, in open country near llan Three men were arrested with him. Hugh Dispenser, Simon Redding and Robert Baldock. His other attendants were released. The King was taken to Kenilworth Castle, Lancaster's great fortress in the Midlands, the other three were taken to receive justice at Hereford, where Isabella and Mortimer awaited them with vindictive delight. Isabella had hoped to make Dispenser suffer in London, but already he was refusing food and water. There was a significant risk he would die before he reached London. Besides which, Mortimer wanted him to die publicly on the Welsh borders, and to suffer the atrocious torture which Dispenser had carried out on one of his own friends. In the debate about carving up the cake that was Hugh Dispenser, Mortimer won. At Hereford, on the 24th of November, Dispenser was dragged through the streets of the city with crowds shouting at him and with verses from the Bible written onto his body. He was hanged on a gallows 50 feet high beside his henchman, Simon Redding. But Mortimer's coup de grace was the torture he had waited to inflict on his enemy for so long. Before the man was dead, he was brought from his gallows and his heart and penis cut out. They were thrown into a large fire. Everyone could see that justice, in a manner of speaking, had been done. The Royal Party spent that Christmas at Wallingford Castle, enthusiastically celebrating their victory. Not only had they effected the first conquest of England since 1066, they had done so without great bloodshed and without losing the goodwill of the country. First, there were the Hainalter mercenaries to be thanked. From the 5th of December, they began to depart, their job done, while their leader, John of Hainault, remained with the royal party. On the 26th of December, the Hainault knights who had come in the company of the Earl of Kent received presents. The victors had no qualms about being generous. They understood that failure to reward men who had risked their lives was a short-sighted strategy. Besides, they had not only the colossal treasure amassed by Dispenser on behalf of Edward II, they also had the personal wealth of Dispenser and his supporters. One of Mortimer's knights, Edmund Hakalu, found £1,568, which had belonged to Mortimer's executed enemy, the Earl of Arundel, in Clun Castle. The contents of the Earl of Winchester's money-chest at Winchester Priory was dispatched to Isabella. Hugh Dispenser's own jewels and treasure were found in the tower. Isabella took delight personally in distributing this hoard to her Hainalter friends. A gilded silver-enamelled cup was a leaving present for John Marbeys on the 7th of December. A gilded silver enameled and engraved cup with basin lid for the Lord O'Court on the 26th. The fairy tale image of the Queen distributing treasure to her knights in shining armor was reality that Christmas. And the armor was shining, too. We know because we have records of payments for it being burnished. As soon as Mortimer and Isabella took power and the Regency was established, the structures they put in place began to record their activities. Hence, in the run-up to Edward's coronation, we have a detailed record of royal expenditure. It is abundantly clear that although Edward was merely a puppet regent, he was made to look the part of a real ruler, from the top of his nightcap down to the toes of a pair of boots made of cloth of gold and silk. Perhaps some of this show can be attributed to Edward II's court. Certainly some should be attributed to Mortimer's influence, as he was known to be a man for whom lavish appearance was important. But now Edward found himself at the heart of a court which was determined to be seen to be royal, official, rich and powerful. Those first days of royal authority left an indelible impression on Edward. If a king wished to be seen as powerful, he needed to dress the part. For Mortimer, Isabella and the coterie of earls and bishops around them, there were other matters to attend to besides celebrations. The big question was what to do with the king. As he had been arrested and taken to Kenilworth and was now back in England, legally speaking he was king again and Edward no longer regent. Conscious of the problem, Mortimer and Isabella took the precaution of issuing writs as if they had come from Kenilworth in the king's name. This was not a situation which could be allowed to continue. It is easy for us to think in terms of deposition. In 1326 it was not. No king of England had ever been deposed. Adolph of Nassau, Holy Roman Emperor, had been deposed in 1298, and Edward I had forced his puppet King of Scotland, John Balliol, to abdicate in 1296, but both of these instances were very different from the present situation. The Holy Roman Emperor was an elected post, not an inherited one, thus the real power lay with the electors. As for Scotland, it was at this time a semi-autonomous unit on the periphery of England, so the English King was in a position akin to that of the Empire's electors except that he was the sole elector of the Scottish king. Unwanted rulers of major kingdoms were invariably killed, not deposed. This was not just because of a vicious streak in the medieval character, it was because removing power from a man ordained by God to wield it was a dangerous business. Edward II himself had, on many occasions, simply revoked parliamentary decisions which had been forced on him. There was a serious case, therefore, for killing him and it is probable that Adam of Orleton, given his public denunciation of him as a tyrant and a sodomite, led the calls for the king's execution. Isabella could not countenance her husband's killing. Of the many bishops and magnates at court that Christmas, all must have cast a guarded eye towards Edward, who also did not wish to see his father torn apart by this pack of self-serving hounds. To advocate killing Edward II would secure the lifelong enmity of his son, the king who would immediately replace him. The consensus was thus one of caution. Edward II would be deposed in Parliament and kept safely in royal dignity but in prison for the rest of his days. The deposition of Edward II was a display of political theatre, choreographed by Mortimer and the leading bishops. The royal party arrived in London on the 4th of January, 1327. Three days later, Edward attended the Parliament at Westminster. For the next few days, the bishops preached sermons about how the country should be ruled by Edward, not his father. The Archbishop of York, William Melton, who owed everything to Edward II, preferred to see the king abdicate of his own free will. The bishops of London and Rochester agreed, but Mortimer was working hard on twisting arms. He used his contacts among the London merchants, including the mayor, Richard Betoyne, to intimidate reluctant members of Parliament. Outside, he convinced the nobles to side with him in a policy of deposition. On Tuesday, the 13th of January, he was ready to force the issue. Edward was in the palace, but not in the chamber with the barons, knights and ecclesiastical members. Therefore, he did not hear the repeated sermons which rang out from nine o'clock nor did he hear the speeches which met with the resounding cries of, Away with the king! Repeated demands for the country to say whether it agreed to the deposition received the answer, Let it be done. Finally, when those present had been totally swept up in the fervor of the moment, the aged Archbishop of Canterbury was called to speak, and he preached on the theme that the will of the people was the will of God. The next time the Parliament was asked whether the king should be deposed and his son take his place, there was a resounding response let it be done, let it be done. With the crowd all singing glory, lord and honour, Edward was summoned. The doors to the chamber were flung open and he was led in to witness the tumultuous calls for him to be crowned king. Edward's reaction is interesting. He refused the throne. As those present at the Parliament came forward and swore homage to him, the Archbishop of York and the bishops of Rochester, Carlisle and London very publicly and loudly declined their opposition was not to him personally, they explained, but to the process by which his father was to be dethroned. These four men alone were prepared to stand up for the man who had raised them to their positions of authority, and for the rights of the crown not to be subject to those of Parliament. Edward's refusal was perhaps inspired by these men, especially Melton, a capable man whom he trusted. It was plain to Edward that if his father could be ousted by Parliament, then he too could be removed from power. He preferred Melton's counsel if his father would abdicate Edward would accept the throne. if not he would not sanction his father's deposition Edward's refusal to accept the throne is the first sign that even though only 14, he was not prepared to bend to Mortimer's will but Mortimer was a formidable political opponent and a far-sighted manipulator while he could not be seen to cross Edward, especially now that Edward's candidacy for the throne had been approved by Parliament he soon came up with a solution. He sent a deputation to see Edward II. They gave him news not only of Parliament's decision, but also the Prince's reluctance to accept it. It was up to the King. Either he could abdicate in favour of his son, or he could leave the throne to Mortimer. On the 21st of January, in the hall of Kenilworth Castle, dressed in black and weeping, Edward II abdicated. The delegation returned to Westminster on the 24th. The next day it was proclaimed that the king had, of his own good will and by common counsel and assent of the prelates, earls, barons, and other nobles and commonalty of the kingdom, resigned the government of the realm. The reign of King Edward III had begun. Edward was crowned on the 1st of February 1327. Mortimer had, in fact, fixed the date even before Parliament had decided to agree to the deposition of the old king. He wanted a quick coronation to confirm the official status of what was effectively his administration. For the same reason, he made sure that all the coronation arrangements were strictly in accordance with the long-standing instructions for the anointing of an English king. Edward was dressed in the traditional red Samite. Striped cloth lined his path from the palace to the abbey. As he walked along it, surrounded by cheering crowds, with at least ten bishops and many earls and other lords and ladies in the procession, he was accompanied by four knights, who held a gold canopy festooned with bells over his head. In the abbey itself, the floor was covered in coloured cloth. The stage, erected specially for the occasion before the high altar, was covered in quilted gold silk. In fact, practically everything at the eastern end of the abbey was covered in gold. On the stage, the king sat on a gilded throne with gold cushions beneath his feet and gold cloth beneath the cushions, a gold scepter in one hand, a gold orb in the other and the gold crown of the Saint King Edward the Confessor upon his head. The hangings of the canopy above him were gold with purple cords. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who presided over the ceremony, also sat on a seat covered with gold. To anyone staring along the nave, as the Latin chants echoed around the arches, the king would have appeared as the sole man in red at the centre of a dazzling celestial apparition in which golden figures moved around him across a golden space and performed the ritual anointing and coronation with golden vessels and golden regalia. It was thus an environment of gold in the most sacred space of the abbey, near the relics of St. Edward the Confessor and the gold-covered remains of his venerated grandfather, Edward I, that Edward swore his vows of kingship. These two were wholly orthodox, consisting of the four-part oath which his father had sworn at his coronation in 1308. Edward III promised to confirm the laws and customs of the people of England, to observe the rights of the Church, to do justice equally to all his people, and to hold and keep the rightful laws and customs that the community of the realm shall choose and to defend and strengthen them. This last clause had been designed specially to preserve the power of Parliament from the encroachments of Edward II's unpredictable self-mindedness. Now, in its repetition at Edward III's coronation, Mortimer forced the same safeguard on the son. Parliament had as great a reason to support this reign as it had had to end the previous one. The king's responsibility to respect the views of Parliament was thus confirmed as a permanent feature of the developing English constitution coronations were times for promotion and celebration too. One important part of this was the creation of new knights. After Edward himself had been knighted, either by Lancaster or John of Hainault, Edward set about dubbing knights, as custom dictated. Unfortunately for him, this was yet another aspect of his coronation controlled by others. Mortimer decided that his own sons should take precedence, and to emphasize their importance, and thus his own, he ordered that they should be dressed in clothes suitable for earls. Edward may have felt a need to retaliate with a few suggestions of his own, and among the knights created on the day of the coronation, we find several who served him loyally for many years. Ralph Stafford, John Neville, William Percy, John Merle, Ralph Willington, Gerard Leal, Hugh Courtney, Ralph d’Urbigny, and Peter Morley, nephew of his old steward. All these men were dressed splendidly in scarlet green and brown cloth, with miniver and squirrel furs, Mortimer's sons were as splendidly dressed as their father, with even larger furs and cloth of gold adorning their scarlet green and brown tunics and mantles. In all these events of early 1327, from the deposition of his father to his own coronation, one senses a certain distance in the young king. It is not so much what is to be read in the records of the events, it is more what one does not read. The king was crowned, but it may as well have been Mortimer's coronation. Mortimer's orders to dress his sons as earls was an ominous sign. Only king's sons automatically were accorded the status of earls. On the day of Edward's coronation, Mortimer was setting himself up as a king. Pomp there may have been, knighthood and lavish feasting too, but there are no references to the king doing anything other than going through with the ceremony. True, there were many gifts given, but they were given to Mortimer's friends, not Edward's. On the day of the coronation, Bishop Orlerton was given a number of items from the royal treasury. Mortimer's cousin, Thomas Vere, was handed two gilt silver basins engraved with the arms of England and France in lieu of his being chamberlain at the coronation. Another of his cousins, Thomas Wake, was given a gilded silver salt cellar in return for playing the part of pantler. The Earl of Lancaster, an older royal cousin whom Edward did not wholly trust, was handed a number of silver dishes and spoons stamped with images of leopards in lieu of his being steward on the day. Mortimer's friend, Richard Betoyne, Mayor of London, who had helped threaten the members of Parliament into supporting the deposition and who acted as chief butler at the coronation, was allowed to keep an engraved gold cup and an enameled gold ewer. Even Isabella, Edward's own mother, shocked him on the day of the coronation awarding to herself the annual sum of 20,000 marks, 13,333 pounds, probably the largest personal income appropriated by an individual in medieval England. Adam Murraymouth, a canon of St. Paul's, was stunned. To her son, she left barely the third part of his kingdom, he wrote. This was not quite accurate. It amounted to only a third of the royal revenue. But the spirit of his exclamation was correct. The remaining two-thirds were controlled by Mortimer and Isabella. The impression one has is that of a boy, albeit a king, with few close friends, shuttered off from the world, partly through his unique position and partly through the threatening ambitions of his mother and Mortimer. Around him, the majesty of the court was swirling and laughing, delighting in its newly found wealth. But at the eye of the whirling storm, he sat alone on his throne, not knowing what was going to happen next. 3. THE DEVIL FOR wrath. Two days after his coronation, Edward presided over his first parliament as king. It was obvious that two of his lords would dominate. One of these was the Earl of Lancaster, garrulous, proud and angry that for so long he had been deprived of his rightful inheritance. He was a royal earl, a grandson of Henry III and the richest lord in the country, and therefore had a good reason to consider himself preeminent. But Isabella did not like him, nor did she trust him. The other lord was Mortimer, who disliked him every bit as much as Isabella, and did not trust him at all. Lancaster stormed through that first Parliament. As Edward watched him from his throne, the Earl put forward a whole gamut of petitions. He proposed that he and the invaders should be pardoned for any wrongdoings, that his brother Thomas be pardoned for his part in opposing Edward II, and that accordingly he should receive his brother's full inheritance. Edward listened and assented, refusing only to grant the part of Lancaster's inheritance which Isabella had already taken for herself. Mortimer kept a low profile. Lancaster continued. As the king was underage, there should be a council of regency, composed of twelve or fourteen men, which he, Lancaster, would lead. And so the whole Lancastrian programme was rolled out. Many grievances dating back to the days of Thomas of Lancaster were aired, curbs on the abuses of jailers, restrictions on the appointments of justices of the peace, rules against the king making contracts with lords to supply troops, restrictions on taxation, Lancaster was given an open field. The power game which was developing during that Parliament was subtle. Lancaster was trying to set the political agenda, as his brother had done before him, and to use Parliament to reinforce his influence over a weak monarchy. Edward was in no position to do anything but take advice and play the official role of monarch, acquiescing to the Council of Regency. Mortimer's strategy was totally different. He would not challenge Lancaster in Parliament. He would allow the Earl to dominate that forum. He did not mind if royal authority appeared weak. But through Queen Isabella, Mortimer had royal influence. He would let Lancaster play the part of a political leader while, behind the scenes, he played the king. Mortimer's subtlety in wresting control from Lancaster went much further than parliamentary conquests. When Edward II had abdicated, he had been promised that he would continue to enjoy regal status as he had before, and so he did at Kenilworth under Lancaster's guard. But certain lords did not see why the ex-king should be kept in prison. In addition, in March, the Dunhevard brothers, fanatical supporters of Edward II, tried to set him free. Mortimer could see that whoever had custody of the ex-king wielded an instrument of great power. Since medieval kings were, by their very existence, royal, they could revoke any law which had been forced upon them. If Mortimer and Isabella were to lose favour, and if Edward II were to be freed, they might see the country reinstate the old king. Edward, still under age, might find his father as his guardian, commanding him to give up power. Mortimer and Isabella decided that Lancaster could not be trusted with such political leverage. As a result, Mortimer secured a royal writ to remove Edward II from Kenilworth. In March, he left court and supervised the removal himself, with an armed retinue, much to Lancaster's fury. The old king was taken to Barclay Castle and placed under the care of two of Mortimer's most trusted supporters, his son-in-law, Lord Barclay, and his old comrade-in-arms, Sir John Maltravers. To Edward, these developments were deeply disturbing. Neither Mortimer nor Lancaster was to be trusted. Lancaster was clearly following his own agenda, insisting, for example, that the young king confirm that he was bound by Magna Carta and the laws of the forest. And Mortimer was clearly a law unto himself, working through people, not institutions or ordinances. Isabella, too, was another force in the land. Her priority, however, was more straightforward. She sought money in vast quantities. In addition to her 20,000 marks a year, she now demanded another 20,000 pounds to clear her debts. Edward could not stop her any more than he could stop Mortimer. Although only 14, and therefore seven years short of being able to rule without a council of regency, in theory, Edward knew that young men who proved themselves in war could dispense with the need for councils and advisers. Richard Berry, full of historical anecdotes, had probably advised him that Mortimer himself had been advanced to his inheritance because of his soldierly prowess at a time when the then king needed knights. So too had some of the young men at court, such as Robert Ufford. Edward was supposed to be the new King Arthur. Had that legendary leader not also won renown as a youth and come to the throne in his 15th year? Edward could see that in order to prove himself a king, he would have to be more than a well-dressed puppet on the throne. The royal accounts for 1327 are littered with payments for armour for Edward. He commissioned his armourers to produce hauberks, greaves, lances, bassinets with visors, the latest style of protective helmet, gauntlets, trousers and breeches, and many other items of personal armorial wear. He ordered decorated actons, protective stuffed leather jerkins, gilded lances and armour for tournaments. Some of his tournament armour was decorated with images of flowers and animals, some with royal emblems such as leopards and crowns. Most importantly, he put this armour to use, as shown by a payment for enlarging his hauberk. Edward took part in tournaments, and, aware of what was expected of him, he made himself as obvious and as visible as possible. Although only fourteen, he was trying to live up to his destiny. Edward's need for a war to assert himself had an unlikely parallel north of the border. The Scots were no less aware than the English that this new king was prophesied to be the all-conquering King Arthur. In order to retaliate with a little propaganda of their own, they chose the day of the coronation to launch an attack on Norham Castle. Their plan went disastrously wrong after the governor of the castle heard rumours in advance and the attackers were repulsed with the loss of several men. Nevertheless, it was an indication that the Scots were no longer satisfied with the truce which had been signed in 1323. In particular, they were not happy that a promise made by Mortimer and Isabella before the invasion had not been honoured. To ensure Scots neutrality, Mortimer and Isabella had assured the Scottish representatives that if the invasion was successful, they would recognise Scotland as an independent kingdom. Isabella had entered into further negotiations just after Christmas 1326, but talks had already broken down. Robert Bruce was growing ill and old, and independent Scotland was his last great ambition. By the spring, he wanted action. Mortimer and Isabella did not want war. They had gone so far as to sign an embarrassingly one-sided treaty with France in March in order to make sure that they would not have to fight in Gascony. Lancaster, however, had good reasons to want the North armed and ready to fight. Bruce had demanded that the northern English barons give up their rights to their Scottish estates. In reality, the northerners had long since lost control of these lands, but they cherished their nominal rights nonetheless. Isabella could not persuade Lancaster and the other northern lords to surrender them. Thus there could be no lasting peace, and thus there would be repeated attacks on the northern marches of England by the Scottish king's men until the matter was resolved. Negotiations led by Lord Percy in February and March failed. In April, the army was ordered to muster in preparation for an attack. Mortimer and Isabella still hoped for a peaceful settlement, but Bruce did not trust them. Moreover, he knew that if they wanted peace, he could not lose by waging war. He would send an army to harry the northern counties until the English leaders brought the peace they wanted by recognising Scotland's independence. The consequent campaign was arranged with more ceremony than strategy on the part of the English. Positions of authority went to all three royal earls, Lancaster, Norfolk and Kent, with Lancaster in overall control. But no one doubted that Mortimer was really in charge. He had considerably more battlefield experience than the earls. Hainalter mercenaries joined them at York, where a riot, which resulted in several hundred deaths, was only quelled by the king and his magnates riding through the streets to restore order. Edward could take a measure of pride in his appearance being the decisive factor in calming the riot, but the omens for the campaign were not good. Still, this was his great opportunity, and he was determined to make the most of it. On the 1st of July, he set out with the army and began the march to Durham, with trumpets sounding and pennons fluttering. Although the chronicler who recorded these details, Jean Lebel, does not describe the pennons in detail, they bore the arms of St. George. This was not the first time St. George had been adopted by an English army in the field, Both Edward I and Edward II had carried pennons bearing the red cross on white background. But on that occasion, the pennons had been mixed with those of St. Edmund and St. Edward, kings of England. This time, only the arms of St. George were specifically made. 1,800 of them were ordered to be taken to Stanhope. During the campaign, more were ordered, including some for the king's own trumpet. It seems Edward was calling the warrior saint to stand by him perhaps as an emblem of his prophesied status as a champion of God. Unfortunately for Edward, the English forces were slow and cumbersome. The Scots, by comparison, were supremely manoeuvrable. Under the command of Sir Thomas Randolph and Black Douglas, they ran rings around the English force. Seeing they had been outwitted again and not knowing whether the Scots were planning to attack the Queen Mother at York or were in retreat to Scotland, one of the commanders ordered a sudden dash to the north to cut them off. It was an unwise decision, for it split the foot soldiers from the mounted men-at-arms, and the supply wagons were left far behind. By the time the English had regrouped at Hayden Bridge on the River Tyne, many of the men were hungry, soaked with the heavy rains, tired and starving. Worse, they had no idea where their enemy was. At this point, Edward tried to take control of the situation. He sent word among his bedraggled and downhearted men that whoever would tell him where the Scots were would receive a knighthood and an income of £100 a year for life. Esquires set out immediately in all directions. One, Thomas Rokeby, not only found the Scots, he was captured by them. When he told them of his mission, they laughed and let him go. Rokeby returned to Edward and admitted he had been captured. Edward acknowledged his honesty and, true to his word, knighted him. Rokeby might have been successful in a most inglorious fashion, but he had given Edward the initiative he wanted. He also gave Edward the opportunity to demonstrate that the king intended to honour his promises. The king ordered the army to be prepared and masses to be sung and called for his confessor. The army set out that morning they passed the burnt-out ruins of Blanchland Priory and continued on towards the Scots' position. Edward was determined to do battle. His mind was fastened on what was required of a king. And the men around him, his bodyguard, would have been aware that this young man truly meant to fight and that they were bound to fight to the death to protect him. At about midday, as they came towards a steep hill on the far side of the river where the Scots' army appeared, gathering themselves into battalions on the slope. The tension mounted on both sides the scots were in an unassailable position but edward was not going to hold back more than just scottish independence was at stake edward's self-esteem and personal authority hung in the balance the english army drew up below the scots position on the near side of the river in readiness edward on horseback rode among them calling out encouragement this was unusual for an english king his father certainly had not done likewise But Edward wanted everyone there to see he was different from his father. He wanted men to see that he would willingly share their danger. Occasionally he stopped and dumped a man a knight there and then. Then he rode on, telling the men that under pain of death, no one was to attack until the order for the whole battalion to move was given. Then the advance began. The army moved forward in slow time to see whether the Scots would withdraw. They did not. Closer and closer the English approached, the crosses of St George flapping in the wind before them until the two sides were in arrow range and they could recognize the nobles on the opposing side by their coat of arms. The Scots stared back. The English came to the river, then Mortimer called a halt. After the failure of a contingent of archers to break the Scots' position, Mortimer called off the attack. Edward was furious. Who was Mortimer to give orders, and who was he to take away Edward's chance of glory? But the truth was that Mortimer was in control, and even he was nervous. His priorities were to keep the young king from danger, to drive the Scots out of England and allow them to pass back into their own country without great loss, so they would sign a treaty. He could not see how he could attack the Scots in their present position without risking all these things. They had chosen a spot which was too well defended. The young king had to be held back. To break the deadlock, Mortimer agreed to allow heralds to cross the river to ask the Scots to fight a fair pitched battle, as the king wanted. This move brought Mortimer time, but that was all. The Scots' reply was calculated to enrage Edward even further. "'The king of England can see we are in his land, and he can see we have burnt and pillaged wherever we have been. If the king is displeased, let him come and seek redress.' Edward's response was to camp exactly where they were. Although he could not go forward because of Mortimer, he would not retreat on account of the Scots. The English nobles spent an uncomfortable night in the open, in their armour, while the Scots banged drums and kept them awake to demoralise them. So began a long stalemate. Edward wanted to attack, Mortimer would not let him. The English lords were set to besiege the Scots in their well-defended position. This stalemate was only broken to be replaced by another, when the Scots suddenly left their camp to take up position in an even better defended spot. The siege began again, the English wary with the wail, and Edward frustrated that he was being denied a battle in which to prove himself a man. It was at this second sight, still on the banks of the river Ware, that the Scots made their move. On or about the 3rd of August, the English had placed their guard for the night as usual, but unknown to them, Black Douglas, the famous Sir James Douglas who was to die in Spain, flinging the heart of Robert Bruce into the midst of the enemy that was pressing his men on all sides, took two hundred men along the river bank and crossed quietly in the moonlight. The English camp was quiet and unsuspecting. Most Englishmen were asleep. Suddenly the Scots rushed in, slashing the ropes of the tents and thrusting down with spears on the sleeping men caught beneath the tangled canvas, ropes and poles. The leaders were sleeping in their armour and were quickly awake, but they could do little to organise resistance, and many men were slain. Edward himself was badly shaken, for as he slept, Black Douglas cut the rope supporting his pavilion. The plan had been to capture the young king, but one of his chaplains within his tent managed to conceal him, saving him from a terrible humiliation. All through the camp, the cries of, ''A Douglas, a Douglas, you shall all die, English thieves!'' rang out and caused terror. Then, as quickly as they had arrived, Douglas and his Scotsmen left the English to tend their wounded men as they lay screaming, dying of their wounds in the night. The next few days were unremarkable in terms of military encounters. Black Douglas had made his point well. The Scots were in the ascendant because the English had too much to lose. Even the English and Hainalters marvelled at the Scots' audacity. But for Edward, it was a startling introduction to war, He had come close to being killed. He had seen and heard men butchered around him. He had seen the dead, their lifeless flesh, the grass soaked with blood. The sight was hideous, but in his comprehension of war and his duty, what he perceived to be required was not a man who would shrink from the sight of death, but a man who would lead his men despite such horrors. So completely did Edward believe in his duty to lead a fighting nation that he saw himself as the failure of Stanhope Park and Douglas as the victor even though the English generally saw themselves as the army which forced Douglas to retreat. When a few days later the Scots once more tricked the English and escaped by night, leaving their leather cauldrons bubbling with stewed meat in a final insult to the army of King Edward, the young king broke down and wept. The tension had been great, the stakes had been high, and in all the suddenness of the Scots' departure it became clear to Edward that he had lost in every way. The Scots had succeeded in harassing the English and getting away without a battle. Mortimer had succeeded in stopping them invade England further and in protecting the king, and Edward was as powerless as ever. There was one small consolation in the failure of the attack on the Scots. Edward had at last been able to speak out against Mortimer openly and in full view of the leading nobles of England. They had all cowered under Mortimer's reply, Lancaster included, but just by speaking his mind, Edward had distanced himself from the growing authority of this dictatorial Mortimer. When the court was informed in September 1327 that there was a rebellion growing in South Wales, and Mortimer declared that he would leave court to attend to it in person, Edward can only have been relieved. He could not possibly have foreseen the depths to which he would shortly be plunged. The court travelled from York to Nottingham, and from Nottingham to Lincoln, There, on the 15th of September, Parliament assembled. Mortimer still had not returned, and Edward was able for several days to imagine that he was king in practice as well as in name. Many issues were raised, charters were confirmed, pardons were issued, terms of military service were established, taxation was discussed, the debts of the Crown were negotiated, and the franchises of cities reaffirmed, and no fewer than seventeen acts were passed. Mortimer only returned on the fifth or sixth day. At the end of the Parliament on Wednesday the 23rd of September, Edward could reflect that at last his authority was growing, and that perhaps soon he would be King de facto as well as de jure. But late that night, a messenger, Thomas Gurney, arrived from Berkeley Castle. He was carrying two letters, one for the Queen and one for Edward. His father, the late King, was dead. Although Edward's relationship with his father had been difficult, it was not the man but his unsuitability as a king which had come between them. Had his father not been a monarch, if he had been a minor lord, he would have been able to enjoy a much simpler life, and he would have been far happier. But as a king, unloved as a child, expected to be a warrior and a leader against his temperament, and placed in a position of responsibility which he simply could not understand, his unhappiness and the unhappiness of his family had been guaranteed." Edward had witnessed the arguments at court and fully comprehended the depth of his father's failures of responsibility. But did these failures deserve to be punished with loss of royal status, liberty and life? Edward did not think so. He wrote to his cousin, the young Earl of Hereford the next day, with the principal purpose of giving orders for the reinforcement of the northern border against a possible further Scottish attack, but he was unable to refrain from passing on the news that My father has been commanded to God. Edward could not have helped but dwell on his father's death. Natural causes? It must have been an illness brought on by grief, some said. But the man was strong, 43 years of age. Edward dared not repeat a suspicion that his father had been killed, but it probably occurred to him. On the other hand, his mother did not appear particularly grief-stricken, even though she had been fond of her husband and had sent him presents in his captivity at Barclay. But since her liaison with Mortimer, Edward was not sure how to interpret her reaction. Mortimer himself gave nothing away. He gave permission for the abbot of Croakston to commemorate the old king's death annually on the 21st of September, and allowed the prior of Canterbury to do likewise. But he refused permission to the monk Robert Beby to receive Edward's body in order to bury him with his father, mother and grandfather in the church of Westminster Abbey. From the 24th or 25th, messengers carried the news that Edward II was dead across the country. Lords and knights leaving Lincoln after the Parliament took the news with them on their return journeys. A huge canopied hearse was ordered for the late king, to be sent to Gloucester Abbey. Various knights and priests were detailed to join the Bishop of Llandaff in the continual watching of the shrouded body from the time of its delivery to Gloucester until its burial. Eight hundred gold leaves were purchased for gilding a leopard onto the cover placed over the body. Knightly robes and tunics were commissioned for the attendants. Four great lions were made by John Estwick, the king's painter, who gilded them and covered them with draped garments adorned with the royal arms, to be placed at the four corners of the late king's hearse. Four images of the evangelists were also built by Estwick to sit on top of the hearse. Eight incense burners in the form of angels with towers of gold and two rampant leopards were made for the exterior of the hearse. A wooden effigy of the dead king was carved, dressed in his robes, and given a gilded copper crown. Oak beams were supplied to keep the crowds away from the hundreds of candles which were to be placed on and around the hearse. Armor, including two helmets, was purchased for the deceased king. Everything was packaged and transported by road to Gloucester, ready for the funeral which was scheduled for the 20th of December. In the meantime, Edward was jousting. At first, this seems incongruous and somewhat disrespectful. The young king, having just lost his father, continued to follow his favourite pastime. But we must remember that Edward was no ordinary young man, and martial prowess was a duty which consumed him completely. Jousting was part of his education as well as a pastime. One can read just as readily that Mortimer ordered the tournaments to take place to divert Edward's attention. It was a full three months between receipt of the letters announcing Edward II's death and the funeral. Life, with all its demands on the young king, had to continue. On the day of the funeral, Edward, his mother, his uncles and Mortimer were among the several hundred mourners who gathered for the late king's obsequies. Hundreds of candles burned on and around the magnificent hearse. High within its structure, the crowned wooden effigy of the king was clearly visible, lying on top of the sealed wooden coffin, which encased the lead coffin in which the embalmed body lay. Isabella was given a silver vase with the man's heart inside, in accordance with her long-stated wish to bury his heart with her. As the monks of the abbey sang a mass, the royal family watched the coffin taken from the hearse and lowered into the tomb on the north side of the nave. The monks carried on singing for the soul of the departed man, and the royal party withdrew. They stayed only for one night in Gloucester, and then left, travelling to Worcester, which they reached the following day. Over the last three months, Edward had come to terms with his father's death. He still must have felt a sense of loss, and not just on personal grounds, for his father was the only other man in England to have borne the burden of kingship. In those three months, too, he had grown more wary of Mortimer who, if he had murdered his father, might equally turn against him. Mortimer had, after all, demonstrated how he could use Parliament to remove a king, and then how he could have that ex-king buried without anyone publicly asking questions as to the manner of death, or even seeing the corpse. In this mixture of personal loss, fear, and growing responsibility, the next development in Edward's reign must have been utterly devastating. He must have felt his whole world shaken, Shortly after the funeral, probably while journeying to Worcester, he was told that his father was not dead. The whole episode had been a fabrication. The letters sent by Lord Barclay announcing the death had been false. Edward had been tricked. Although we may now piece together the process whereby Edward, Parliament and the rest of the country had been misled, we cannot know what the young king thought in the days and weeks after receiving this shocking news. However, it is reasonable to suggest that along with the resentment towards Mortimer, he felt an element of self-recrimination. Mortimer had set the trap, but he, Edward, had walked blindly into it. As soon as he had been informed of his father's death, he had started circulating the news, on the very next day in fact. Why did it never occur to him to check the identity of the corpse, to insist on seeing his father's face? But Edward was intelligent enough to realize that his mother and Mortimer between them would have prevented him from making sure. And his mother may well have suggested that it was in all their best interests that his father lived out the rest of his days in obscurity. It had already been agreed that the man should be kept perpetually in prison. But any relief Edward felt in knowing that his father was alive would gradually have been eroded by the disturbing implications of this news. Mortimer had power over his father. His father had been forced to abdicate. What if Mortimer were to turn against him? Edward would be exposed as having officially announced his own father's death and having subsequently attended the funeral when a false body was lowered into a royal grave. How on earth could he, Edward, do anything but support this upstart monster Mortimer? He had not only been tricked, he had been trapped, and his mother was part of the plot. There was no one to whom he could turn."